having brief conversations, if you're from the dominant culture, means you're probably going to hear things that are going to hurt. They're going to be ouch. I call them ouch moments, right? And yeah. I feel like my job as a DI practitioner most of the time is navigating folks through aha moments and ouch moments. Most yeah. people think that DI is all about them having aha moments, epiphanies. I'm like, yep. But you're going to have to get some ouch moments first because discomfort is not the ceiling. It's, you know, it's the floor. And the breakthrough comes after you move through the discomfort. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the All Inclusive podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Debonair Oates Primus, award-winning DE&I strategist and VP of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at Oakview Group. During the episode, we discussed the importance of having courageous conversations and the need to equip our leaders with the skills to engage in them and how diversity and inclusion initiatives have evolved within the sports and entertainment industry. We also chat about the future of DE&I and the changes and improvements that Debonair hopes to see in the coming years. As always, before jumping into the video, make sure to hit that subscribe button, turn on your notification bell and follow on your favourite podcast platform so that you never miss an episode. That being said, let's jump in. Hi, Dr. Deb. Hey, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. How are you? I'm so excited for this conversation today. I am good. I mean, I am enjoying the weather right now in Philadelphia. It's really nice out, even though I spend most of my time in the office, but I have a nice view. So I'm good. How are you? Yeah, no, good, good. Not too bad. Summer is soon approaching, so um, I'm excited about that. We've been having some okay weather here in the UK, but it, it doesn't really last. So fingers crossed it does this time around. <laughs> But um, yeah, I'm, so for our listeners out there, would you mind telling them a little bit more about yourself and your journey to where you are today with Oakview Group? Absolutely. So I am Dr. Deb. I am our Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Oakview Group, which Elevator Pitch, I oversee all of our programs, initiatives, and strategy. But what I can tell folks is simply put, right, like what I really do is provide access for people from systemically marginalized groups and also build inclusive workplaces where everyone can bring their authentic selves in, right? I employ different strategies to do those two things. I get I get to do that. I always tell folks, I get to do those two amazing things at um, Oakview Group, which is an amazing organization. It is a sports and live entertainment venue development company. We um, own, operate, or manage over 300 plus sports and live entertainment venues across the US, UK, and Canada. So that's my current job. I do come to this job though with 15 years of experience in the DEI space. I started out in higher education. I don't know if in the UK you guys call it that. The university, yeah. <laughs> I think is what yeah, you guys yeah. say. Yes, <laughs> I don't know. One of my closest friends is from London. So I have some of the lingo, don't test me, but it's mostly slang. Yeah, okay, so after this, after this conversation, I'm going to test you on some slang. <laughs> and you got to tell me some of your slang, because I'm uh, awful with American slang. <laughs> uh, well, she always tells me, too, that she's been in the U.S. for, like, 20 years. So she's like, my slang is so outdated, probably, but I still love it nonetheless. But um, I started doing DEI in the higher education space. And I'm born and raised in Philadelphia. Uh, DEI is really important to me, as you can imagine, for many reasons. It's important to my organization, which I love. But for me, I'm the perfect person to be the architect behind our DEI. As a Black woman, as a Philadelphia native, Philadelphia is one of the largest cities in Philadelphia. But what you, what you may not know is it is also one of the poorest, largest cities in Philadelphia, right? With also a really large population of Black people. So the reason why that's important is I'm a, I'm a Philadelphia native. I am a woman who comes from a low-income community in Philadelphia. I am a child of a single parent. I am a first-generation college student. I come from a working-class family and community. So, you know, um, what I just named were all these different social identities that are really important to DEI, right? I bring all of that lived experience, and, and, it, and, I can, and it informs every decision I make as far as our DEI strategy, right? But then I traverse through all these different municipalities because I'm also someone who has a terminal degree, right? I have a PhD in critical race theory and gender studies. 
right? But I'm a first-generation college which means no one else in my family has any degrees. So what that means and what I bring into it and how it informs me feeling like I have a voice, a seat at the table in every space I'm in is really important to me. That's how I started off doing this work. Back to your original question. I was on a tenure track for faculty. Um, I, like I taught English for God's sakes, <laughs> that, right? Um, I at like a university in Philadelphia and that was my track, my mentor. I was on a tenure track. I did get tenure. I did get promoted to associate professor. And um, I worked in a department that was not diverse at all. Mm. We, we served predominantly black and brown students because it was in Philadelphia, but our faculty populations didn't look like that way at all. My department chair at the time, who was also became like my mentor was a white woman who came to me and said, I really want you to be part of like the next search committee to, you know, to hire more faculty. And I looked at it and I said, uh, I don't think that's my bag, honestly. You know, it's a <laughs> yeah. like seven month commitment, right? On top of my course load and all the other things. I just wasn't really, I was like, I don't think I want to spend the next seven months. You know, like you aren't paid anything additional for it. And she looked at me and she said, I need you to do this. Like we are not getting who we need as far as the um, diversity in our faculty. And I need you to be a part of that search committee. I did it. It was horrible. Um, <laughs> I was, was going to say, I thought you were going to say, was. I did it. It was amazing. <laughs> it was. No, no, but no, this is a great story. About how no, but DI, yeah, no, because okay. that's what DEI is. Mm -hmm. Folks think it's these amazing experiences. No, I did it because I identified a gap and a need. And I didn't want other folks who look like me to go through another horrible experience. It was horrible. We didn't do any inclusive hiring training before we started. I was the only person of color on the committee itself. I was the only person who was valuing us bringing in a more diverse group, us interviewing, everything was a fight, right? Uh, we got 300 applicants in that talent pool that time. And I was, and like, I became the spokesperson, like most people of color do, right? I was the, I was the spokesperson. I was the person who was getting into most of the, um, the debates with my other colleagues. And that's what made it horrible. I mean, before then, my colleagues saw me as affable, Right. Mm. As just someone who, you know, and I had to be in this really defensive space the entire seven months. We're just getting them to consider people who look like me. But when you do that, I had to also point out their biases and no one likes that. So I left it feeling just really deflated and I was ready to get back into my normal work. But my boss was like my mentor as well was like, can you talk to me about the challenges and what you would recommend for us to do moving forward? I'm like, we need bias training. We need inclusive hiring training for the entire committee. We need to be setting a, a core set of values that includes diversity that we are looking for as far as competency assessment when we are interviewing. So that way it's not all this work ahead. And she said, well, can you create that? So I did. And I created this inclusive hiring training that my department ended up loving. And then other academic departments were like, can you do it for us? And then the president of my institution was like, can you implement this um, university-wide? And I did. And then he sat me down and said, what other recommendations? Can we be doing anything else? Can we get bolder in our approach? And I'm like, yep, we can create a targeted career development program that, you know, um, that explicitly looks to recruit BIPOC. And, and I can like the U.S. BIPOC stands for Black Indigenous People of Color. BIPOC talent. Right. And then we give them all the keys to like the master's castle. We tell them how to get what like they need to have to get through the interview process. And we make it super transparent. And he said, how much will it cost? I told him and we did it. And in the first year, we increased our diverse talent in departments that had none by like 15 percent. Oh, that's fantastic. There were departments that never hired in the in the whole existence of my institution. One person of color that hired two in one year after they came through my program. And that was the impetus of it. And then it just evolved. Right. They were like, I became a thought leader at my at my institution when it came to DEI. Right. It started with the head of our diversity council being like, Deb, could you come and talk to us a little bit about 
the data that you've been collecting around our talent pools and all of that. And then it just became really clear, I think, that I should be leading it across the organization. Mm. So I shifted career paths completely. <laughs> completely. Yeah. I gave up teaching, like it was which meant I love. To be, though. To, it, yeah. it kind of, it sounds like, you, whilst you gave up teaching within the the subject area and matter in the traditional sense of, of teaching and, and, and being a professor and, and, and you accomplished tenure, which is amazing. Um, mm-hmm. But I feel that you've kind of, you yourself has, have gone on a journey and evolved in your own teaching. And now that you're teaching others about the importance of providing opportunities to those that, that haven't had them. Um, Absolutely. And this is the way that, and this is, and you're kind of paving the way in, in, in your teachings, like this is how we can do it. And this is how we can do it in a sustainable way. So, I mean, like, that your this story is is amazing it's very inspirational um and kudos to you that you took that step because like you said in the first instance you didn't really want to do it <laughs> but it actually turned out to be like, the best thing I ever think most of most i know like most poc don't want to do it and why i'm getting into this work is i don't think that it should be all on them mm. like or on us right part of why i said yes to my department chair and mentor about, about doing it again was like, how do we change this process where the responsibility of driving inclusive change is not solely on people of color, right? I'm just like, this this isn't fair. That weight is too heavy, right? Like what I was feeling throughout those almost like was that that was a heavy weight. And then all of the emotional trauma I dealt with afterwards, me, me trying to get back into the, into the good graces of faculty members who control my tenure, Right. I like keep I keep that in mind. These people who I was fighting with, identifying their biases, some of them also had all of this control over my career trajectory. And this is so afterwards I'm like, okay, let me like make you realize that I'm still a good person. I'm still a good researcher, right? Like even though BI has nothing to do with morality, it gets reduced to that. So I had to do all of this, you know, reconstruction afterwards to rebuild relationships with with predominantly white faculties, like, you know, for them to still see me as, you know, competent and not antagonistic, yeah, right? And confrontational mm. and not this angry black woman who for seven months, you know, pointed out how you were racially biased and not, and like, and not trying to interview people from underrepresented groups. Mm. It was hard. <laughs> and I wanted it to not be hard anymore for people who, you know, I want folks to want to do it. Mm. I, like I wanted to change that I didn't want to do it because I knew what it was going to be and it was all that I thought it was going to be and I wanted to change that experience so I wanted more black fat people like I want to be on that search committee but no one wanted to do it yeah. so yeah that was part of why I shifted and so how do you think DEI has evolved for you from I mean whilst you you kind of ignited your your DEI kind of leadership path from education, but you've been in in the sports and entertainment industry now for 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 quite a while as well. At the same time, mm-hmm. so how do you think that DEI has evolved since you've been working within sports and, and entertainment? I mean, oh, that's such a loaded question, right? <laughs> so it is, it is. I'm going to answer it in two parts. All right, so I'm going to answer it the way that most people in the U.S. answer it in the beginning which is post-George Floyd, post-summer of 2020, right? Like every single industry had to take a hard look at racial discrimination and the ways in which our corporate structures replicate colonial hierarchies, right? And the sports entertainment industry was, you know, was no different. So what we saw was a um, an uptick, a huge uptick in chief diversity officer roles. So just to give a little bit of context, in the US, DEI, depending on the industry, is either really prevalent or non-existent. The sports and live entertainment industry literally had to create positions that didn't exist anymore. Mm. I mean, ever, like like didn't exist. And they had to sort of figure out what are our values? What are our core objectives when it comes to DEI? What do we wanna do? So we saw all of these public commitments from the sports and live entertainment industry about what they were going to do. And it, you know, went from 
commitments to Black Lives Mattering, to commitments to financial investments in Black communities and underrepresented communities, and investments in actually attracting and retaining diverse talent. So that's how it changed initially, right? Just immediately we saw a lot of that. Recently, what we're seeing, though, an article, I think, by Harvard Business Re like Review, I think, was just released saying that in the U.S., two years, three years after George Floyd, what we're now seeing is a big decline. Those same companies that made all those commitments are now either dissolving their DEI departments or reallocating those responsibilities to different roles. So, you know, when we're looking at analyzing what the state of it is now, it's a little bit, I'm a little bit nervous, right? Are we like, you know, what's this performative? And are we really committed? And when I say we, I mean the U.S., the country, the sports and entertainment industry as a part of that structure, right? How committed are we? Lots of DI practitioners in the U.S. We're having these conversations across social media, in collectives, in meetings on like what that means for us. What does it mean when we're seeing this decline after three years? And the reasons for it. We're hearing lots of CEOs and companies say, you know, um, that the reasons for the decline or the redistribution of that role to, you know, um, to HR or others is because they didn't see an impact. And that's disappointing, too, because it's been three years. Mm -hmm. And I feel like DEI is like the only initiative where we're giving it such a short time frame for us to see tangible results, even though we know we're not putting the resources into it that we need. Yeah. We know we're not putting in the executive commitment that we need. Right. We know like we're not driving the kind of engagement within the organization that we need, but then we're judging it in this really harsh criteria. Mm -hmm. So that was like my two part answer. Right. I want to just give like optimistic before I went to like and, you know, but we'll see. I'm still optimistic, cautiously, that we can turn this thing around and that we can change the discourse so that companies are in it for the long haul. I think this is a long game. And if they thought that in three years they were going to see these amazing turnovers and transformations, it's ridiculous. I mean, racism and heterosexism and all of the isms have existed for over 400 years and we still have them. Y'all expected in three years for us to completely transform your organization without the same amount of resources that you give any other initiative that is revenue generating, mm. right? Or that you see as revenue generating. No, it's true. It's, it, it, it's so true. And I think um, it's it's one of the phrases that I say time and time again on, on this show. And like, I feel like my listeners are probably going to get so bored of it. But honestly, like this, this is not a sprint. Like we're not racing. Yeah. We shouldn't be racing to the end. Like whilst, yes, we want change to happen and we want change to happen as soon as it can. But we, we need to also be realistic and that anyone that is leading the change and is is creating any initiatives and programs, I feel like it's so imperative to be transparent with the key yeah. stakeholders and with those that are invested in the work and that are waiting to see what happens is to kind of be, be open with them about how long is this all actually going to take? Like realistically, based on where we're at as an organization, this is where we want to get to. This is how we're going to do it. Um, but be mindful. And, and I think also being able to clearly show your progress is yeah. is another key factor in in that as well. Because I think um, you don't know what you can't see, right? Like, so. Yeah, exactly. So even if, 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 if these people are, are turning around and like, oh, where are we now? If you are able to provide them with tangible, clear, statistics on okay well we might not have hit the goals that we we were looking for but look where we are now like look at how far yep. we've come which i think we're still we're still a little bit more um behind in terms of the di analytics side um absolutely in my absolutely opinion. I think we are we are we are but i mean giving us credit you know what i mean like <laughs> Like we are behind, but we've come so far yeah, in a short period of time. I mean, like when you look at the evolution of like like of DEI and its focuses, right? Twenty years ago, DEI was compliance and regulatory, right? So there was no need for these analytics and metrics, 
right? Or or it was just based on incident reports. And mm. when I first started my first job, my first real job out of undergrad, right? Like that first company, that's what DI was. That's all that person was. He was a former lawyer and his job was to, you know, mitigate in, like incident reports. And that was all. And like, you know, and communicate to us any EEOC legislation, right? That was come out like that would affect it. And, you know, in the course of a really short time, we've completely shifted that perspective on what DEI is. So we got to catch up. We shifted to be like, okay, it is about so much more than that now. We are infusing DEI to every business unit of organizations and embedding it and aligning it with the culture and the values and all of that. And yeah, we, we have done a lot in a short period of time. And now we got to figure out how are we measuring this and, you know, how do we define what success looks like? And I think what I want to see from companies is patience. Mm patience and gratitude. You are welcome for how we are transforming this thing so quickly. And it would be nice if you just gave a little bit of time to figure out how, you know, we're measuring this because most folks who do this work aren't trained in this work. Mm, no, it, like that's also something we're not talking about. Yeah. Like how, yeah. How are you trained to do DEI work? I mean, even me, I have a, I have a academic background. Right. I had an academic background. Right. Like, you know, yes, I can I can talk to you all day about key theorists from critical race theory and gender and intersectionality. And if you're you know, you want to spend an hour or two talking about post-colonial feminism. I'm your girl. Right. <laughs> I, or I was your girl. Yeah. But how we translate all of that into right. Like what are best DI practices What are you know, inclusive policies and all of that. That's different. Right. So, yeah, I started to say, yes, we are behind in data. I'm like analytics. We also I just want to give us like lots of credit for we're building it as we're building like this, I'm like this plane as it's flying. In your experience so far, what have you found to be an effective tool or resource in order to be able to create initiatives and, and create the change that we're looking for in a sustainable and effective way? Um, a few things. So I will say early on when I started doing DEI work, a lot of my frustrations, like when I look back, are due to where I was beginning the work. I used to think that DEI work began with the people and the workforce and getting buy-in from them first and coalition building and then pitching it to senior leadership. That was frustrating because we know now that the buy-in needs to come from senior leadership first, right? So to me, when I started with OBG, you know, I was a pro then, I was ready. I'm like, okay, I know where we're starting and we're starting with senior leadership. I need a few things from like from you guys. I think executive sponsorship, executive accountability, and executive commitment is very important. And I think for any DEI practitioner, you need to be explicit in defining what those three things are to the senior leadership. What it means for them to support initiatives. Does it mean that, you know, they just listen at the DEI executive caucus meetings every every month and say good job? Because if that's what you if that's what you make it mean, that's what like they think it'll mean. Of course I support you, Deb. Yeah. Like I I, I come to the meetings and I listen. So defining that it's action oriented is important, mm. right? And getting them to understand that inclusion work is all of our work. It's not just my work. So in transferring that ownership and getting folks to understand at the top to own their role in DEI work, right? I'm all, like, what's your role? What are you going to do? How are you championing this? Now, I'm a coach most of the time. It's how I should tell them. I'm your coach. I'm not the quarterback. <laughs> I like you that guys one. are yeah, yeah. right. I'm no, not I heard mean, that. this is a football, yeah. Yeah, American football. Now. Yeah, I mean, I don't know anything about American football, but I do. I know what a coach is, <laughs> and somewhat a quarterback. You can switch to know. basketball. I'm not the point guard, right? Yeah, no basketball <laughs> out too. I'm, I'm awful point guard. when it comes I am to sports. The coach. <laughs> but yeah, I know, and I'm a little, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from Philly, and we're still looking our wounds from that last loss, all uh, the playoffs for like the. Uh, the championship that just happened. So bear with me. Oh. But yeah, I'm like, I'm the coach and you guys are my players. And I think that's where um, my whole, the whole impact of the work I did shifted 
once I took on that mentality. I used to do the work where I thought that I was all the things. I was the point guard, right? I was all the players, right, in it. I thought that I, like, they, I did a good DI practitioner meant that I was doing all of it. Mm. And I was burning out. I was exhausted. I didn't have the senior leadership commitment like, that I needed financially, the whole thing. And it was exhausting. At OVG, in my consulting work, I'm like, we're starting at the head and I'm defining it for them. Here's what I need you to do, right? So much of my work here is sending senior leaders emails, right? Sharing with them some data, right? Like, here's what's happening. We're right now in the midst of a DEI training launch, right? Um, Throughout our entire company. And, you know, it's going really well, but a lot of it is going really well from what I've learned to not do. This is like my first go around. And when I first did DEI training at, and like in higher education, it didn't go well. When I said it didn't go well, we didn't have the participation rates that I would have liked from employees. And part of it was because I didn't start with senior leadership and some ideation sessions on what's the best ways to engage them, to make them accountable, to infuse this in, in their performance management structures, right? Yes. So that they are motivated to go, right? All of those things are sort of where we started. And OBG is going really well. We have a 100% participation rate so far. Every single one of our senior executives have done it already. Um, all of our VPs have finished it, and we're now on to our general manager. Well, hundreds. I work for a company of 30,000 employees. Yeah. Hundreds. Like, every, are like, that's a big number. And, and it's robust. They have to sit, you know, um, on a virtual instructor led session for 90 minutes for six weeks, mm. right? 90 minutes every single week for six whole weeks. And not only are they participating, they're loving it. They're sending me emails. And the difference is, is the way we like rolled it out, right? Yeah. We sent out so much communication beforehand, like letting folks understand what our objectives were. It's so important for that, like, that folks understand our why, mm. why we're doing this why, and like what we expect the, like, for, like you to do after this. You, are, you guys are our DEI champions. In order for you to really be able to champion DEI work, you need to become educated on cultural intelligence. You need to become educated on the ways to cultivate diverse top talent. You need to be able to identify and recognize your biases and also employ strategies to disrupt those biases, right? And and that's how we got buy-in. But it started with senior leaders. After our senior leaders finished their training, we, we did theirs in person in LA for two days. No phones, no laptops. Top CMEs like in our company, we're like, nope, you are in this. And they were all for it. And then um, we sent out a company-wide communication sharing their takeaways, right? Like them saying, and this is what I'm doing. And that mattered. Hearing your leader be like, this is what I'm going to focus on. And I really want, I want you all to do it. So that executive commitment and sponsorship is really important. Mm. I spend so much of my time just, I'm a co-chair. I'm giving you talking points for like your next town hall. Right. I'm like, here's what I need you to say. I'm giving them critical feedback when they make public statements and they don't mention our DEI initiatives. And they're so open. I'm like, next time I want you to elaborate on this, 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 and this. And what that's doing is shifting ownership. Right. Mm. I used to be like, and next time have me a part of the town hall and I'll do it. Now I'm like, nope. (laughs) Next (laughs) time, here's what I want you to say. Right. Because they need to hear it from you and needs to feel like it is really important and meaningful to you. Mm. And so with the, I mean, I know when when we talk about DEI training, there's a lot of people that are like, oh no. I know, and I know. There's, it's, there's a lot that say it's, it doesn't do anything. There's some that say it's amazing. I know. Do you know what I mean? And I, I'm on the fence. I think it's, I think training, an element of training within any sort of organization, DEI strategy is essential. I think it is needed. Me too. Um, it's what that training looks like is where the question is, yep. is is the massive question mark, right? So for you... It's not just what it looks like, Natasha. It's also like before you roll out the training, what are the outcomes that you set? And are you communicating to your workforce what is expected of them from it? We need to think of DEI like training like we do any kind of class. When you go into college like and choose a major... Right. You are asked, like, what do you want to do? Yeah. You might not do it. Most of us don't do what we say we're going to do. <laughs> I, <know. right? laughs> I mean, hence what I'm doing. Right. I'm remembering back when I start, when I went to uni and I, and I was trying to pick, what do I want to do? Yeah. <laughs> I know. 
completely but I mean, like, we go in there, like, with a purpose. Mm. I feel like, right, like, like, all of us understand that degree attainment is going to get us closer to whatever our career goals are, right? We need to treat DI training in the same way. Folks are going to buy in more if they feel like it's purpose-driven. And what's the companies? And that's not predetermined. That's not something that they should have to guess. The organization needs to communicate that before the training begins. How does it align with our overall strategy for the company and our values? Easy part of that communication. But what's expected of all participants of the training after they finish? Mm, that's, so I'm that's, that's like my second yep. question is like so what happens after that because I know yep. so we've touched on at the beginning which I that's something that I haven't really heard before and I think it makes complete sense and it's 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 good that you're being clear about what's the objective what are we trying to do here but after that where you when you mentioned about you shared the, the takeaways from from the exec team that had gone on the training and and they'd expressed like this okay great this is what I'm going to do this is what I'm going to do what what happens after that What's the follow-up? So I helped design our modules for our DEI training. And in the last training, so they have six modules, right? And again, it's it's instructor-led. And, you know, all of them except for the last one are competency-based. So, you know, they're all like how to identify biases, how to, you know. The last one we call it, so what now? It's not competency-based. It's like a workshop. And then that last one, they have to come up with an action plan. Every single person by the end of it is creating their action plan for what their work looks like after this session ends. So how are you going to apply the skills that you've just acquired into whatever your everyday business is? And we do it small. They have three goals. So they have to cascade into four quarters, right? What are your goals? And it varies. If you're in partnerships and sponsorships, one of your goals might be for us to engage with more diverse brands, right? To increase the diverse brands we engage with by 10% by the end of this year, right? That is a reasonable goal. And then, and then like we work on it. So that's key. What are their plans afterwards? And are you like, you know, making sure like you're driving through that they should have a plan afterwards when they finish this training? That's one thing we do. Another thing is, you know, this is this shouldn't be a one and done. You are not going to acquire cultural intelligence in six weeks, right? Like that's not how it works. Just like any other thing, right? My yeah. PhD took me ten years for God's sakes, but like to say I was a subject matter expert, and I still am constantly doing so much more reading to make sure I'm up with contemporary discourse, right? Mm-hmm. DEI training is the same thing, so. You know, building a resource library for folks for continual learning is important and making sure you're pushing out that communication. So on our intranet, where, you know, we have a, re- a DEI training library, resource library, where all these materials live, videos, podcasts, articles, studies, how-tos, rubrics, if you want to be, you know, figure out how to become competency-based in your interviewing, right? How to create some core values and incorporate DEI into your value system before you look at any applicant pool. Just practical ways. Because a lot of DEI training is theory-based. And folks are like, how am I translating this theory into practice? Mm -hmm. They're not wrong. They're like, this was really abstract. This was great. Thank you so much. I'm going to go back to (laughs) my accounting. I mean, like, whatever. You know what I mean? It was like, this was fun, right? This was Mm -hmm. fun. This was like a cool break from my accounting job. I'm like, hold on now. Hold on, Josh. I just made up Josh. That's not a real name that I yeah. <laughs> That is actually an OBG. It's like, like that I work with. I'm like, hold on, Josh. So you're not done. I'm happy you enjoyed it. Now let's talk about what you're going to do. And then back to senior leadership. Again, I'm a coach. So I coach our senior leaders before their direct reports took the training on what they need to do after the training is over to make sure that it's not just a one and done. A few things you can do. Um, you can create DEI huddles. Again, it's about leadership. So I suggested that like our senior leaders do a few things. I'm like, definitely add it to your agendas of your next meetings after your direct reports finish it. And you don't have to have all the answers. Ask them questions. Like, so how are you guys gonna, you know, make it a brainstorming session? Yeah. So what's next? Right? Because they need to know that you are also gonna be as their leader interested in what they're doing yeah and now they're like oh crap this is this is real <laughs> this is real like they're going to be asking me over and over again like how is it going what are the plans right so that's one thing another thing is you know continuous learning 
um, we're like we're gonna be pushing out these webinars where I lead. Um, we had this one session for the DEI training called um, "How to Have Rape Conversations," and that's a again people think these are soft skills, and I I, I hate that word soft skills because yeah. we know from the data that culture is the driving right force to like I'm like for any company being successful. Mm. But because culture doesn't have a dollar value to it, we think it's like, you know, not as important as all the financial gains that a company can make. Anyway, um, uh, I want to have like these webinars where I invite leaders to come in and anyone who have already taken the trainings and talk more about how to have brave conversations. But now make it more activity based. Right. So you got the foundational knowledge from our first bit of trainings. Now come in and let's do some scenarios. Let's practice it the way we do any skill that we want, right? Like when you learn how to drive, you don't just go right to a NASCAR race, right? True. I mean, if you do, you're going to yeah. die, right? <laughs> right? That's not, I mean, it, it, yeah, that's you could. You could works. actually die. Yeah, no, that's, yes. that's so true. You got to practice it. Mm. So it's like you took one driving class and now you're like done, ready, right? I'm like, you're not ready. Let's practice this skill now, right? Let's practice having brief conversations. Let's practice how much capacity you have for for change, for hard conversations. And that, when we do that session, and I'm like, let's do some practice. And I give them real life scenarios. I also show them video clips. One of my favorite ones is this Grey's Anatomy clip, and it's this is us clip. I love. Oh, which I, clip is that? I mean, I, I love Grey's Anatomy. I need to know what what bit is this. It's the clip where, um, oh, Maggie and what's what's Meredith's sister? The other sister. Derek's sister. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Yes, I know. I can't. I know. I know what you mean. Yeah, Derek's sister. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're in a parking lot. And Maggie is um, talking. No, I'm sorry, not Maggie. The other sister is talking to her about an incident she had with a black patient and how the black patient sort of calls her out. Mm. And she starts to go into how, you know, they misunderstood her and she didn't mean it. And Maggie's quiet. She's not supporting the other sisters. Amelia, that's her name. Amelia's perspective. So Amelia's like, wait, hold on. Like, what's going on? And she's like, "Mm, you were kind of, you were kind of defensive. And she was like, you don't see me. Right. Like I'm a black doctor here and I go through what your patient goes through all the time. And it took a while because Amelia is still fighting it. She's still being defensive and the whole thing. Um, Another favorite I have is a This Is Us episode that I use as a scenario. And it's my it's my favorite one to use as a training. And it's This Is Us did a great job of recreating what the vibe was like post George Floyd. So it's the episode that they devote to after the death of of George Floyd Mm -hmm. and Randall, who's adopted and is a black child in this family as an adult goes to this dinner with his two siblings who are white and it's post George Floyd and he's upset and he leaves and his sister comes outside and she's like, Randall, are you okay? He's like, I'm not okay. And, and she's like, well, what can I do? And he laughs and he's like, what do you mean? I've been black in this white town and this white family my entire life. And you've never thought about how that must have made me feel. And he's like, I'm always uncomfortable. I'm always putting your comfort over my safety. Um, and, and then he says, right in this moment, you're crying. And now I want to stop because telling my truth makes you cry. Yeah. Like that is the problem in our, I, and it was just, I love that moment. And I usually play it and I pause it and I ask all of my participants to like, I'm like, Tell me what Kate did wrong. Because I think in that clip, Randall comes off really aggressive. Yeah. Randall's the black man. And I think they're, as, like, they're expecting me to say, and let's talk about how Randall handled that wrong. But I'm like, nope. Let's talk about how Kate handled that conversation wrong. Because she does begin to cry. She does make it about herself. Yeah. And he does have to console her. And he even, call, even calls it out. He says, now I have to console you. A black man just died. I'm a black man. I'm scared, right? I'm all these things. And now I have to console you because talking about my truth is making you upset, right? And then a lot of the participants like will say, well, 
you know, what was she supposed to do? Are we all supposed to cry? Are we supposed to feel these things? And I'm like, you have to decenter yourself. Having a brave conversation means you're not at the center. It means your feelings in that moment isn't the center of that conversation. Empathetic listening means you have to figure out what is that other person feeling? And I think for folks from dominant culture, that's the hardest thing that they don't understand about what it means to have brave conversations. It means that you're going to have to put yourself second for, for a moment. It means that your feelings, what you're going through, isn't as important in this moment as this other person's psychological safety. That's how you build trust. Yeah. Right? Because that's that's important when people from underrepresented groups. Do I trust you with my hard truths? Can I trust you with my hard truths? Yeah. Are you going to make it about you? Are you going to, you know, shame me? Can I have this conversation with you again? Do I want to have this conversation again? Right? All these things are going through our minds and the way that they react in that moment, the way that they, like they make space for our hard truths is important. And it's my favorite scene to do some practice with having a brave conversation and what that means. I even give them little scripts. Like empathetic listening means you can say things like, thank you for sharing that. Because I think for many people in like dominant culture, they want to fix it right away. And yeah. they want to like, oh, well, let well, me I say feel like sorry. Want or... to, to make it clear that, oh, well, I'm not that type of person. I don't, I, I would never do that. I I, I, you, I think right? black lives matter. Like that, that, I think it's, and again, yeah, it yep. is making it about you rather than just digesting what someone has said and just yep. being like, thank you for having the courage for sharing. Appreciate thank, it. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Natasha, right. Thank you for having the courage for it. And also being, being okay with being called out, having brief conversations. If you're from the dominant culture means you're probably going to hear things that are going to hurt. They're going to be ouch. I call them ouch moments. Right. And yeah. I feel like my job as a DI practitioner most of the time is navigating folks through aha moments and ouch moments. Most yeah. people think that DI is all about them having aha moments, epiphanies. I'm like, yep. But you're going to have to get some ouch moments first because discomfort is not the ceiling. It's, you know, it's the floor and the breakthrough comes after you move through the discomfort, right? The aha is going to come when you're able to take in some critical feedback about yourself. You are, you probably microaggress folks. And having a brave conversation means when a person, under underrepresented group at your workplace tells you that you microaggress them, you don't go right into what you just said, Natasha. You don't go right into Black Lives Matter. I'm not that person. You were that person two minutes ago when it's okay. Yeah. You can grow if you allow yourself to. You know yeah. what I mean? No, no. Like, you know, I like I growth is not going to happen you. if you don't acknowledge what you need to grow from. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, I completely hear you. And like with the events of George Floyd, and I don't know if, if for even for my husband, he, he has his own podcast and he's a white male and mm -hmm. he has a huge platform. Um, which he's built over time to help advancing HR communities and other leaders. And I was like, are you going to say anything? <laughs> I love it. Are you saying something? I Also, we have a four-year-old daughter. She's biracial. Mm -hmm. I'm black. Mm -hmm. He's met my uncles, my, 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 like my family. Like he's, 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 it was, I was like, are you going to say something? And he was just like, oh yeah, I don't, exactly he's like i don't know what to say i was like i know but by you saying nothing says everything and it's Thank the opposite you. of who i know you are you absolutely know? so absolutely you i was like so and i think they need say, to hear that from mm -hmm. us your silence feels like compliance exactly right like your silence feels like apathy and i've learned because i have um, I have I have white friends. I have some white friends who are amazing allies. And I had to learn that their silence doesn't always mean that. And most of the time it means like what you just said. Like I don't have the lexicon they'll tell me. I don't I don't want to say the wrong thing. And that's why having brave conversations is such an important skill. Mm. You have to get them to understand you're probably gonna say the wrong thing. And you have to build up your grit to accept the fact that you won't get caught out for it and then try again and again. And again, so it's like, you're right. You are going to say the wrong thing probably, but that shouldn't stop you, right? From saying it and learning and taking a growth mindset because you don't have the same lived experiences as me, right? You have lived in a bubble. White supremacy does mean that you get to live a life that I don't get to. 
You get to live a life where you don't have to talk about race. I have not gotten that luxury. So I am more, uh, you know, um, learning it like in this. I'm more knowledgeable. And you're going to have to understand it. You're going to make mistakes, and that's okay. But you're going to have to just come out on that limb and make the mistakes. Because you're not talking is worse. Mm. Right? Uh. <laughs> like, you're not saying anything is so much worse. <laughs> and we got to get over that. That's But that's a brave, that's a courageous conversation we're saying. Yeah. Right? Courage means you have to have the courage to be like, what I'm going to say right now might get me completely, you know what I mean? Like, you know. Not cancel, but people are going to come to me and say, you did this. And you're going to have to be like, yep, I did. And now I'm learning. How can you help me grow from this? What can you do? So much of this stuff is like Google it, though. Right? Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to need you to Google it. <laughs> I'm going to need you to read some books. Mm. Also, I feel I like it's important like, you know, to build, build a network around you where you have individuals from other cultures um in order to if you say if you supposedly say the wrong thing that they you trust them that they'll be honest with you to call you out and you can hear exactly. hear what they have to say and learn from that and then go out and absolutely. do your own research that's a yeah absolutely. that's a key point do go out and do your own Thank research you. please yes. okay because i am not the encyclopedia of all things black <laughs> And I'm tired and we tired and we deserve vacations and spa days and self-care where I'm not on call to be your like educator of all things black and female and mm-hmm. you know, no, I'm good. I can teach you, but I don't want to. It's, <laughs> no, it's a lot going on, you know, just period, racism, you know, and all the things the and heterosexism yeah. and gender discrimination and, yeah you know those things are exhausting so if i can just get like a some time off i just want some time off can i just get time off from being your educator slash all the things i'm good you know so i I agree no i've literally i've I've so enjoyed this conversation um (laughs) thank you so i knew i knew it was going to be a good one and you definitely you've not disappointed like i've so much enjoyed it um i am conscious with time i can't believe it like honestly i feel like i can talk to people for ages i'm too much of a chatterbox um but (laughs) before you do have to leave us um i'd love to hear from you what do you what do you see the future of dei in the sports industry and entertainment looking like what what are your what are your hopes what do you foresee i hope that we increase our level of commitment to dei right and that we see it as all of the things, right? I hope that we give folks on like represented groups seats at the table, to the party, whatever whatever D analogy you love. But then we go beyond that, right? That we let them dance at the party, we let them plan the party, right? We give them real agency so that they feel, um, you know, independent enough to actually be able to push forward this work in a real way. Um, my hopes is that we begin to understand that focus is not exclusion. I feel like in the U.S. in particular, we get sucked into these discourses where DI practitioners are defending their work so much they can't shift to actually implementing the work. And part of that is, I I, I almost hate that word buy-in. I hate it. How do we get buy-in from this particular group? It's like, that is the problem. So my hope for the industry is that we come into these spaces where you already acknowledging that this is needed and we can start in a different phase. Yeah. I shouldn't have to start with I'm I, my, where I'm getting, well, I, where I have to get buy-in from you, where, where I spend so much of my time, you know, focus on the resistors. Like this should not be about that. We should know that in order to move forward with DEI, we have to be intentional and strategic. And I can't do that if I'm focused so much on why we need this. I want to start focusing on the how. Like my hope for DI is that we are we move more from the why and start going on the how, the how much, how much per year should we be doing, yeah. you know, and effort, money, finances, like the whole thing, right? I shouldn't have to be spending, most of us shouldn't be spending our time with worrying about why this is still needed. And I know this is a hard time to do it in the U.S. when we're looking at sort of, you know, the radical right. And all the anti-woke legislation and initiatives that we've seen in some of our states and all of that. But I just 
I want us to like not be distracted and to stay focused because this is important, right? Like this work is important. Important for folks like me. I need the next generation of employees, the inner organizations that look like me to not have the same experiences as me. That's my hope for the sports. Like, like I want for Gen Z to tell me, I don't want, I'm tired of us having the same shit experiences. Yes. I don't want to go into a space and be like, oh man, I microaggress every day. I don't want a Gen Z to be like, me too. I'm like, crap, we are not, this is not what progress looks like, right? So that's sort of my hope for it, that we do better, that we understand that DEI is a journey, not a destination, kind of like what you were saying earlier, you know, all the, take your analogy, and that we get serious about it because for people like me, this is serious. Not to spend too much time on me, but I'm the perfect person to, to do it as, you know? Someone who came from where I came from, I never felt like I had a voice in in white spaces, in spaces that people like didn't look like me. And I'm constantly in those spaces. And what I need, and what I needed at that time was for someone to tell me that you belong. I know folks look at me and like, Deb, how don't you belong? You have a PhD. Yes. You get so much respect. But it's different, right? I come from a working class family. I come from Philadelphia. And, you know, I come from a single parent household. All those things I carry with me in every space. So I'm constantly thinking, can you see those things? And I'm covering. Yeah. I don't want you to see all those parts of my identity that I think make you see me in different light. Make mm-hmm. you see me as someone who doesn't belong in this space, doesn't deserve to be in this space. So that's my hope, that we change the space, that we make space, that we stop using fit-in paradigms. We want these people to fit into the culture. Mm-mm. I don't think that's what we should be doing anymore. Let's expand the space so that folks from different groups have room to be themselves in there. They don't have to fit the culture because newsflash, the culture isn't diverse or inclusive. Yeah. So why do they have to fit into, you know what I mean? Yeah. We don't want them to be clones of what we already have. We want them to feel comfortable to celebrate their differences. Yeah. So. Oh, definitely. That was a long answer to what you asked. No, but it was such a good answer. It was really, it really was. Thanks again so much for joining me today. For anyone who is listening, if they want to connect with you, how can they do that? Sure. So LinkedIn is my, for now, most like favorite platform. And I'm Dr. Debonero. It's Primus there. My headline describes what I do. But my favorite one of all of those is I am an advocate for unapologetic authenticity. So um, check me out there. Then secondly, on Instagram, PhD, PH Debonair. That one is easier. It's like PH dot and then it's my, um, like my full name um, is also where. And then check out Oakview Group on all the social media platforms as well. Um, we do a lot of communicating out our DEI initiative. So check out Oakview Group as well. Oh, fantastic. Like I said, I'm going to be putting links down to, to all of those socials um, and all the socials for OV Group too. So whoever is listening can definitely learn more and, and connect with you. Thanks again, Deb. Oh, thanks.